This episode is brought to you by Oberly Risk Strategies. Now, some of you likely know Oberly is the insurance brokerage and insurance diligence provider for the search fund community and has been trusted by search investors, lenders, searchers, and CEOs for over a decade now. The company is led by August Felker, himself a two-time successful searcher, both within the funded and self-funded models. He personally runs Oberly's dedicated search fund practice that works with searchers across the entire diligence, purchase, and post-close process. Their due diligence offering, which is 100% free of charge, by the way, will assess the pros and cons of your target company's insurance program and will summarize any potential coverage gaps, the pro forma insurance pricing, and the program structure changes needed for closing. At or shortly after closing, they will then execute on all of those findings on your behalf. In nine out of every 10 client engagements, they're able to either reduce spend or improve coverage, all in such a way that the searcher or CEO can focus on other things while Oberly handles all things insurance for them. Oberly has serviced over 900 customers across a decade of operation and has an NPS score that puts them at the top of their industry. But don't take my word for it. Click on the hyperlink located within the show notes or in today's episode description, and we will gladly put you in touch with as many happy Oberly customers as you'd like. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of In the Trenches. I am your host, Steve Davitkos. Today, I am excited to present you with our second deep dive episode. Now, for those of you who may have missed out on the first one, deep dive episodes are where I spend several weeks going through almost three years of In the Trenches archives to tease out all of the best insights that we've been able to collect from each of our guests specific to a single discipline. And today, that discipline is compensation. Just like our first deep dive episode on hiring, I suspect that I don't need to convince any CEO of just how important compensation decisions are and how fraught with peril they can be when not done properly. So with that said, I want to jump straight into today's show. And first up, you will hear from Vern Harnish. Vern is the founder of the Entrepreneurs Organization, or EO for short, which is a global network of entrepreneurs and CEOs boasting over 16,000 members worldwide. He's also the author of multiple global best-selling books, including Mastering the Rockefeller Habits and Scaling Up. Perhaps most importantly, though, at least for the purposes of today's conversation, he also has a new book out called Scaling Up Compensation, which is all about how the best CEOs create and structure compensation plans to support their company's most important goals. Every entrepreneur and CEO listening to this will, you know, count compensation as an issue that is near and dear to their hearts. So before we dive into some specific questions, uh, can I ask you to please just briefly summarize the five core principles that you outline in this new book? Yeah, and Steve, the book's out, um, came out July 2nd, and as you know, it's a hot topic right now, given all that's going on and trying to attract and rain, retain talent. It's, it's literally crazy out there. So we pulled together these five design principles, really based on two fundamentals. First, that your comp needs to be reinforcing what it is that the customer wants. And number two, you just want to get it right and out of sight. You know, it's your largest expense in many cases. And, and sadly, can often end up being a downer 
inside the organization, creating like all of this drama instead of getting you some kind of a strategic advantage. So we outlined five. The first is like strategy, it needs to be different than everyone else in your industry. Number two, it's about fairness, not sameness. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why Google made the decision they did a few months ago to look at paying people less that chose to remain working remote than those coming in the office. Number three, but we really wanted to be careful, be easy on the individual carrots. Number four, but let's gamify the games. Let's really have some fun and take advantage of some psychology we understand about people. And then last, we called it sharing is caring. And that's really where you look at the broader profit sharing and even equity sharing plans or components of a good comp plan. So jumping into a few follow-up questions for you, uh, one of the things that you just mentioned vis-a-vis uh, -vis individual carrots, and, and as a former CEO myself, I remember in crafting my own compensation plans, I very often found it difficult to strike a balance between kind of three primary buckets, which is company goals, departmental goals, and individual goals. Um, the reason why it would sometimes be challenging is because sometimes they would be in conflict with each other. Sometimes they would present unintended or unanticipated consequences. And sometimes uh, incentives or outcomes fell outside of the control uh, of, any, of any given group. So this is all to say that striking a balance between company level, departmental level, and individual level goals was, was pretty challenging. In, in the process of putting this book together, what did, what did the research reveal about the best ways for CEOs to strike a balance between these three, you know, quote, buckets of incentive strategies? Well, you know, part of it is we keep trying, like pricing, to use logic like this. And the, the challenge with setting pricing, and I consider compensation pricing internally, is you're dealing with people. And one of the things we've learned, a guy won a Nobel Prize three years ago for this, is that, that people are not logical, they're psychological. And so the techniques that we look at are more psychological in their approach and less about this trying to be logical about individual team and company. And, and, and by the way, I want to go back to really none of that matters because all of those goals should be pointing to one thing, and that is, hey, what is it the customer wants? And as long as your individual team and company-wide comp systems support what it is ultimately the customer desires, and some examples that we'll share I think will highlight that, then you're going to be fine with your compensation system. So don't get so internally focused. That's the problem. You've got to stay externally focused with these sets of decisions. And what are some examples of customer-centric goals that tie together company, departmental, and individual incentive schemes? Yeah, you know, so I think about many movers down in Brisbane, Australia. You know, they're not Facebook, Google, they're moving furniture. And so let's start with the customer. What is the number one thing a customer wants? Number two would be, hey, just get it there on time. But even ahead of that is... I don't want to see a scratch. I don't want to see a dent. I, I want that furniture to arrive in exactly the condition that you picked it up. And so almost everyone in that industry has in insurance, you know, so they'll cover any of these kind of damages. And we work hard to train people and make sure they know how to pack and they're diligent. And there's all this kind of drama. And so um, the founder down there said, hey, 
I'm spending about 3% of revenue on this insurance. Why am I paying the insurance company? Why don't I pay you guys, the movers, per job? And so here's the deal. Whatever the revenue was for that job, 3% set aside. And if there's any damage at all, it comes out of that 3%. But if not, it's distributed to that team, not across the company, but to that team that together had to make that move successful. And what's interesting, and by the way, this will add about a thousand Australian dollars per quarter. Uh, so 4,000 a year is you know, enough to differentiate to get a, be attractive to folks who will move furniture for you. And as a result, way before the customer has to pay attention to it, or even the boss has to react, it's the peers that are actually tending to each other, helping to cross train. And by the way, if somebody's just not getting it, they'll be like an immune system and kick them out sooner than what the boss has to decide. And so it's a self-regulating system where everyone is aligned around not what it is they want to achieve uh, as workers, but ultimately what it is the customer wants. And so it solves about a half a dozen kind of management issues while keeping everyone aligned around. Again, the thing that matters most to the customer, don't damage the furniture. Now, in a business like that, um, I would imagine that the customer preferences are relatively uniform in nature. As you correctly point out, you want it to be delivered on time, you want it to be delivered free of scratches, et cetera. If we go to a more kind of multivariable situation, if you will, I'll bring it back to my business and running a software company where we had large customers, small customers, we had customers using product A, customers using product B, um, that created a lot more variables than let's say a handful uh, that you would contemplate in the context of a moving company. When you've got a customer base that is not uniform in its characteristics and might not be uniform in terms of what it needs or wants from you as, as a company, how do you decide which customers to listen to? How do you balance the 10 to 20 to 50 things that 10 given customers will ask you for? Said another way, how do you distill hundreds to thousands of customer requests into kind of the most important thing or the most important things around which to base the compensation system? Well, Steve, that's been uh, really leads to strategy. And that's why the compensation strategy needs to align with the company strategy. And this is where we'll turn to Frances Frey at Harvard and her book on common service that you've described precisely uh, the challenge you know, customers want more and they want to pay less. And so there's the train wreck. And so what she teaches, and we do as well, that if there's a list of 10 or 10,000 demands by the customer, you have to pick the three and you have to know the one that matters most. And then on a scale of zero to five, you've got to be a 10 on those three. And then you have to be willing to not even allow, not even pay attention to the rest. She says it really more clearly, you know, you've got to be willing to upset kind of 93% of the marketplace, but you're so loved by the seven that they'll put up with all the other abuse you're willing to put on them. So let's, let's take Apple, you know, the highest market cap company on the planet. Um, probably one of the most abusive companies also on the planet, making decisions that aren't necessarily what customers want from you know, we're not going to have any phone jack to the connector that we've got to, you know, they did mess up in the size screen 
that was needed. Yet what's moving up is security as the number one concern. And the fact they had that security outage, um, I don't think Steve Jobs would have ever allowed that to happen, rest his soul. And so there's a complex set of desires that all customers have, uh, no matter what the market is, whether customers of Oracle, but Oracle got really clear that, look, the number one thing we need our database to do is allow your apps to run twice as fast on our database as anyone else's database. Yeah, there's a hundred other things that might matter, but that was the one that they pin the company on and their brand promise on. And then therefore that's what you need to deliver on. Now, how that goes back and ties in with compensation um, is another piece of the puzzle. But first you have to figure out if you want to convince somebody to buy your product or service over someone else, the godfather of influence, Cialdini said, you got to give them three reasons, three trumps two or four or a list of 10. Uh, so that's where we start with strategy. One thing that I wanted to pick up on is uh, this concept that you mentioned uh, of fairness, not sameness in a compensation uh, scheme. And, and, and I went back to a 2010 blog article that you wrote uh, specific to compensation. And in that blog article, you said that when it came to star performers within a business, CEOs should simply be willing to do whatever it takes to keep them going as far as, you know, to suggest that CEOs should be willing to customize their compensation packages based on the individual requests of, of, of a star performer. And I know that of the CEOs listening to this, if they're anything like me, they're going to see two potential issues that I'd love for you to speak to. Uh, the first issue is that even though in my experience, you know, um, compensation is technically supposed to be confidential. Uh, it's supposed to be confidential. Uh, inevitably, I found that word would always get out amongst the employees. And of course, the the fear amongst CEOs is that if I give person X exactly what they want, then ten minutes later, person Y is going to be coming into my office with her own list of demands. So that that's issue number one. And potential issue number two is one of the ways that I've always thought about really effective compensation plans is this. Uh, issue of simplicity. Um, if you start to customize plans individual to specific employees, how do you avoid creating an overly complicated plan that has a large administrative burden? I, I know that's an extremely long and probably uh, too verbose question, but those are the two issues that I, I suspect are in the minds of the listeners. Can you speak to those? Uh, yes, and that is precisely what we address, Steve, in that chapter. We've got a very detailed case study uh, telemedicine clinic, uh, T TMC out of Barcelona, 450 really highly professional radiologists uh, in that firm, plus all kinds of other technology workers. They have a big tech platform that allows them to do remote radiology from Australia, taking care of hospitals in Europe at night. And the analogy that I use, and, and, and here's why it's fairness, not sameness. The same person in the same job isn't it's not fair that they would be paid the same if they are tremendously more productive as the research is very clear uh, there's certain in almost every position one employee can outperform another in the same role by a factor of three to one ten to one and as as bill gates famously said uh one great programmer can replace ten thousand other programmers which is why it's important first when it comes to a base salary to have very wide bands. Uh, you've got to be able to, and you can publish it because that's the first thing Alex said is, hey, if somebody found my payroll 
in the scrap bin, uh, I'd be challenged to try to justify it to anyone if it was printed on the cover of the Wall Street Journal or Financial Times. And so that's what you're trying to address because this the word does get out. And so you start with very wide bands and then they were clear. There were five measurable things in each one of their positions that you could do that could allow you to get paid as much as twice or more than somebody else in the same position. Now, let me use, let me use an analogy. And we actually think you ought to run your company more like sports teams instead of families. A lot of people talk about the family atmosphere, but I don't know about you. I wouldn't wish my family dynamic on anyone. Uh, just watch billions or successions. And, you know, the term dysfunctional family is a redundant term. And so we really prefer the professional uh, sports team model, you know, with their scoreboards. And, and does every quarterback in the NFL get paid the same? No, nor does every right tackle or field goal kicker. And are, is all that data available publicly? You bet. But the industry has also, through data analytics, gotten very clear that, for instance, the quarterback efficiency rating is a pretty good accurate measure, uh, plus a few other stats of why Patrick Mahomes, uh, at least coming off the last two seasons, deserve to be paid the most of really any quarterback uh, out there. And it has a lot to do with the stats they're able to achieve. And then obviously we measure the success of the defense by how much they can plunge you know, a quarterback's efficiency rating. And so it does demand for you to get clear, not what are the 20,000 statistics, but what we call the money ball stat. You know, what they figured out in baseball, measuring everything that didn't matter and compensating based on it. When Billy Bean came along, he finally figured out, you know what matters? You know, on-base percentage. And he was actually able to recruit folks at a lot lower compensation because he had that insight before everybody else did. We also know the right tackle. I mean, the left tackle is the you know, critical position. And thus all of the movies that we've seen around that critical position, second highest paid generally uh, on a sports team, unless you have a left-handed quarterback. So um, sports gets it. It's as transparent there as any industry and we can accomplish the same if we'll give it some real thought. So what I'm hearing is utilizing metrics and specifically that small handful of metrics that truly matters to take the subjectivity and perhaps as a result, the emotion out of individualized compensation schemes. Is that a fair assessment? It is. And it also provides a clear path because there are really three effects that financial incentives should provide, Steve. First, what we call the selection effect. I wanna use my compensation system to be attractive. And I think it's interesting, Harley Davidson this year decided they're going to award all 4,500 of their employees equity. Uh, look, holding on to blue collar workers is, is hugely difficult right now. And so you've got the selection effect. Then you have what's called the information effect. And that's what we're talking about here. The compensation system should point to, hey, what is it we really need you to accomplish and do, whether it's the quarterback efficiency rating or, or whatever. The least effective is what we call the motivation effect. That is, I'm gonna get people to try harder and almost all comp plans fail or you know, last about a day and a half if you give a bonus. Um, 
look, if you've hired right, you've hired motivated people. What you want to do is make sure the comp system isn't demotivated. And that's what ends up happening if you're not clear how to delineate how you can move up in, within a pay band uh, doing five things, for instance. Next up is Dave Pruszynski, who will be speaking specifically about how to compensate a high-performing sales organization. Dave spent 10 years as the Executive Vice President of Sales and Marketing at Fleet Complete, which is a technology provider to fleet-owning businesses around the world. Under Dave's leadership, Fleet Complete grew their annual revenues by a factor of 25 times, achieving a 50% revenue growth rate for nine of his 10 years. Dave now spends his time as a revenue coach to several small and medium-sized businesses, working directly with their CEOs and heads of sales to optimize their sales and revenue generation processes. Okay, let's let's move on to compensation because like I mentioned, this is topic number two that clearly CEOs have questions about. Um, and, you know, in my experience, my God, I, uh, I gain my share of gray hair trying to put together sales comp plans. Uh, it's, it's, um, it's, it's a really interesting exercise and something that I learned a lot from over the years. So just starting at a high level, Dave, what are some of the biggest mistakes or the most frequent mistakes that you see, you know, leaders make when crafting a comp plan? There's, I, I call this the, the, the biggest deadly sin of compensation plans. And this, and it's the one I see almost far too many CEOs make and, and, and heads of finance, making a compensation plan that is too complicated. Number one, by a long shot, a sales rep should be able to, in their head, understand what a new opportunity means to them in commission dollars the moment they get off the phone or WebEx. This is an amazing motivator for a sales rep. They go, bang. I know this one's going to be 10,000 bucks in my pocket. I'm super excited about this. So they've got to be able to quickly calculate and say, I know this is going to be it. Whether it's a, a gross margin analysis in their head, whether it's a, a pure dollars per units perspective, but making your compensation plan simple enough that a rep can understand what any single activity he's doing is in dollars is going to drive positive results. Now, as I said, the second thing, uh, a big mistake is um, I see capping of earnings is a is, is a big mistake. It's a great way to create a culture of mediocrity. And you don't want that. You want reps. If, if a guy goes out and kills it, and yes, there's ways to sculpt sales plans that you're not having big whales that offset an entire year, and you can do that. Um, but if you build a sales comp plan that claws back commissions, you know, from accelerated levels at 200% to normal levels that were in the, that you've already passed by. It's just a way to ensure deals and activity slip from one quarter to the next. Um, you know, there's ways I was saying to craft commission plans that ensure consistent reproducible revenue for the company while keeping commission payments in budget. Uh, but the best salespeople do not get into this profession to be capped. They quickly will find a new home if they feel they can't reach their true earning potential. So, you know, I would, I'm very hesitant to cap earnings. I want to make sure that every sales rep knows that they can make a lot of money by doing the right things and closing business and that they want to be aggressive to go out and close that business to make that money. Um, and you start capping earnings, you start to see people gaming the system. Is there um, some sort of like rule of thumb or heuristic that a CEO or a VP of sales can apply um, to a given comp plan 
um, to tell them if it's simple enough. So for example, it shouldn't exceed two pages or uh, a salesperson should be able to read it and calculate in less than 10 minutes what their uh, incentive comp should be if they hit their target. Is there any just kind of rules of thumb that you apply that a CEO can say, okay, my comp plan is now simple enough? Yeah, I've got one I've actually used in the past. I actually give uh, uh, prospective comp plans to reps in the field. And I'll say, take a look at this and read through it. And they'll say, I get it and I understand it and I can see what I can make. And you tell them, you know, if you have the right relationship with your frontline people, they'll tell you the truth. And, you know, truth and honesty and, and respect are incredibly important uh, from a management to uh, report and, re and report to management. So if you give them the commission plan, say, look, take a look at this and let me know what your thoughts are. If they come back with five questions, you've probably got it wrong. Hmm. You probably got it wrong because they're going, okay, I don't get this. But if they go, okay, I get 6% of the, of the ARR in year one. Okay, well, you know what? In my head, I know that each of my deals is worth, you know, average deal size is 10,000 and I sold three a month. That means I'm going to get X dollars very quick math and they can do it. If you've got four levels of abstraction with five different buckets that you have to hit um, bucket one, bucket two, bucket three, bucket four to get to accelerators, everyone will just start to go, I, I don't understand this. And how do I make money? Yeah. It's, it's, it's pretty easy to find out, you know, by putting it in front of the reps and they'll say, I get it or I don't very quickly. You know, it's, it's interesting. This might sound like a bit of a tangent, but uh, I'll, I'll, I'll bring it home eventually. Uh, Warren Buffett is, is famous for his shareholder letters, obviously one of the smartest investors of all time. Uh, one of the reasons why his shareholder letters are so famous is because he writes them at a level that almost anybody can understand. And one of the tricks that he uses uh, is as he's writing the shareholder letter, before he starts, he addresses it to Edna and Mabel. So he's pretending that he's writing it to kind of two old ladies. And uh, I think his intent in doing so is basically this premise that, you know, if you can explain this to your aunt Edna and Mabel and she understands it, then you've written it at the proper level of simplicity. And I wonder if um, a similar spirit can be applied to a comp plan. I, I agree. I mean, I, I think it should be for most business language. Um, yep. You know, whether you're talking to your customers through marketing or communications uh, or to your reps and their commission plans, it's make sure it's clear and you know, obfuscation, confusion. They just build distrust and and the inability to relate to your customer or your individual sales reps or, or employees. So clear, concise and simple communication is key to establishing the right goals and motivations with your organization. So uh, I've had to, in the middle of a given year, because of some major changes that we made in our company, I've had to completely restructure a comp plan mid-year. Uh, and that was really challenging. So have you ever had to do that? And if so, you know, what did you learn um, going through that experience? Yeah, I've had to do it. And it's a painful uh, it's a painful discussion. It's not an easy discussion. Uh, no rep wants what they've been doing halfway through to be changed because they've got these goals in their head and they're working towards them. You know, in these cases, it's worth it to take the time and to meet individually, you know, whether you or your leadership team to go over why the changes were made with each rep, you know, why the company has made the decisions to do so. You know, when decisions are logically made and they're sound, 
you'll be surprised how on board a sales team will become. Doing a blanket announcement on a team call, right, and is a great way to disenfranchise your team quickly and get them to go, I, I don't get it. Now, people are logical. And if there's a good reason, they will understand. Uh, you know, if your sales teams are even on ESOP programs, uh, they're shareholders and they will jump on board even further. But communication is key. Sit down, take the time, meet with each one individually, talk them through why the business decision was made. They're smart people. They're vested into the company. And if it was made with logical and reasonable uh, reasons, they'll get on board and they'll understand. So in, in my situation, we had to change uh, our comp plan because we changed the revenue model of the company. We went from a one-time license purchase to a subscription-based purchase. And so the, the revenue profile of the company completely changed. Uh, therefore, the comp plans had to change. Yep. What, what situation caused you to change your comp plan? Because... You know, CEOs might, let's say they, you know, halfway through the year, they're either way above or way below their projections. And they might say, okay, well, I got to change my projections. Therefore, it's time to change comp plans. But, but that could be a dangerous line of thinking. So how should CEOs think about when they need to change a comp plan mid-year versus when to just leave it alone? Mm, that's a tough one. For me, it was an introduction of new product. Uh, that skewed results and it came in earlier than what the comp plan was actually ready for. As, as we know, business is not, nothing if not dynamic, right? I mean, things are changing every day. The projections that you made in, you know, November of, you know, last year, you know, once you get into February or March of this year, I mean, those, those projections um, could be out the window because the world could have fundamentally changed. I mean, for me, the, the lens that I put on it is, um, you don't necessarily hold your reps accountable for the bad forecasting that you made personally. Uh, but there's, if there's a fundamental change to the business that fundamentally impacted their ability to hit their number, uh, then that was the time to do it. I wonder, do you have any, uh, is that consistent with your perspective or is it, do you have a different way of looking at it? No, you, you need to, you need to make the decision that you need to make as a business, but this goes back to the individual conversations. Um, when you broadcast this in a group, uh, it get, it, the, the reasons get lost. When you sit down and you actually dig into the numbers and don't be afraid to open the books and say, look, guys, this, here's what's happened to our business. And here's what we've done. And here's why we've had to do this. You'd be surprised how, how accepting to these difficult decisions many reps will be when they understand the health of the overall business is at risk and this needs to be changed. It comes down to strong and honest and open communication and making them part of the decision process and making them part of the, the circle of understanding. When you keep them in the dark, they get angry. When you tell them openly and honestly, they understand and they'll say, okay, this makes sense. And for the goal, for the good of the company, you know, I can suck it up for six months till we get to the next call plan. Yeah. Someone once told me, you don't burn bridges by what you do. You burn bridges by how you do it. Cool. Uh, and, and I thought that was really, really insightful. Uh, the how you do it, I think, uh, to your point, is much more important than, than the what. I mean, obviously, you don't want to be changing comp plans four times a year every year. Um, but if you kind of treat people as mature adults, explain to them on a one-on-one -on -one basis what happened, why that necessitated the decision, 
you know, look, they might not be absolutely thrilled with it, but at least they'll understand why you made the decision. Um, and I think if you go about it in a respectful way, that the risk of alienating people or burning bridges is is low. But but it's all about the the why you did it and how you did it. So um, let's let's stick with this idea of comp plans changing, right? Sure, so sure. moving from changing comp plans within a year to changing comp plans year over year. Generally, I mean, there's some change. Revenue targets change. Business goals change. Uh, a number of things change year over year. But at a general level, like how how do you think about making changes to your comp plans year over year? I mean, how much change are you making from like a magnitude standpoint versus how important is it to stay consistent? Yeah, I, I've seen multiple, I, I've seen large organizations that make massive radical changes year over year. I've seen comp compensation changes that are minimal. Um, and I've done a lot of research myself. You know, there are different schools of thoughts on both sides of this. You know, one where radical change yearly is a good thing and one where steadfastness is is favored but my personal and this is my personal opinion through experience is that consistency is a better path there is always companies new financial goals product launches or deletions out of product sets there's going to always be situations where compensation needs to be there's going to be situations where situations where compensation needs to be radically changed to avoid massive disruptions at the end of the year um, but overall, I like to keep my compensation plans fairly consistent year over year with the necessary tweaks that the business needs, either product deletions or maybe there was too much uh, commission being paid on a certain product and it was it's affecting the, the profitability of that product. Um, so I don't like to make too massive a changes because then reps spend the next three months figuring out how they're going to gain the system every year as opposed to getting down to business and selling for the first three months of the year. And, you know, in a SaaS business specifically, you don't want reps for the first three months of the year just trying to figure out their compensation plans. You yeah. need them crushing their numbers for the first quarter because that represents 42% of your yearly revenue. If a company is following a calendar year, so their calendar and fiscal year begin January 1st, when should yeah. the sales reps have that year's comp plan done and in their hands? Uh, yeah, they should have it in the quarter before. They must have it and should have it before the year starts. And let me tell you, you know, having been through many, many iterations of this in many, many situations, it's difficult to do that. You know, sometimes you can't get your yearly budget as an organization finalized and budgets get set and then, you know, then compensation gets set and it it sometimes bleeds over. It And it it's too confusing. It's too painful. And I've been on that side of it. And I hate doing it. But... Um, I like to get them in the quarter before, and then they understand what's going to go on for next year. Yeah. Not, not, not at the first of the quarter, but like kind of two, three weeks before we don't want them maybe figuring out that there's going to be a change in competition and now they're going to slag a deal at the end of the year because they're going to get paid more. Uh, we want them closing right up to the end, but they should get it before the uh, quarter ends and get before they get into the new quarter. This episode is brought to you by Symphony, a global software design and product development firm with presence in the United States, Latin America, and Europe. Almost every SaaS CEO with whom I'm familiar will likely agree that the technical due diligence process is perhaps the most important work stream for any prospective software CEO to get right. This is especially true for those like me who would classify themselves as non-technical. 
Symphony not only performs technical due diligence engagements for search funds, private equity firms, and strategic acquirers, but they also work with companies to immediately begin executing on the problems and opportunities identified throughout the course of that process, as they do essentially everything related to product. This can include outsourcing your development entirely, augmenting your existing team, prototyping a new product, refreshing your UI, or professionalizing your QA operation, to name just a few. Symphony was co-founded by a Stanford GSB grad in 2007 and now has over 700 full-time development, product, and design resources across the globe, in addition to business and strategic resources from McKinsey, BCG, Google, and several private equity firms. For listeners of In the Trenches, Symphony is offering a full 15% off of any of their services, and that includes the technical due diligence engagements. Just go to the contact form on their website and tell them that you're a listener of the podcast. It's lastly worth noting that their team is fully staffed and ready to go, so if you have a technical due diligence or other product engagement that's time-sensitive, it's definitely worth checking them out at symphony.is. That's symphony.is. Next up, you're going to hear from two former guests, both of whom will be talking to us about the merits and risks of using equity or stock options as a form of compensation. Let's start with Rich Manders. Prior to becoming a CEO coach, Rich Manders co-founded and led iAutomation, a Massachusetts-based machine control company, and grew the business from zero to $90 million in sales with 180 employees until selling the business to the Riverside Company, which is a leading global private equity firm. After Rich, you'll be hearing from Brent Bishore. Brent is the founder and CEO of Permanent Equity, a private investment firm that invests in founder-owned private companies. Permanent Equity is a long-term investor that typically intends to hold portfolio companies indefinitely, often without the use of any leverage. You had an option to, you know, as running it as the CEO, you had the, the opportunity to provide your leadership team or maybe your employee base more broadly with options or equity in your business. And, and I had the same thing. So in my case, uh, I gave options to my management team. And ultimately, when we sold the company, you know, they benefited financially from that. But I, I don't know where I kind of reside on the spectrum of um, options are a very, very important tool to attract and retain talent versus they're a little nebulous, they're a little amorphous, and people just kind of treat them as gravy, and maybe you'd be better off just giving profit sharing because it's more immediate term in nature. So, you know, did you give your management team or your employees like an economic interest in the business? You know, why or why not? And how do you think SMB CEOs should think about, you know, this question of whether or not to give uh, key people an economic interest in their business? Yeah. So the, uh, there's a few, there's a whole bunch of stuff in there, but um, th to answer your first question, yes, we did mostly for just for management. Um, we gave uh, options in, you know, along the way The the challenge with options, as you pointed out, is that the time horizon is pretty far out there. And, and, and we use, and you could, whether they're options or uh, stock appreciation rights or phantom stock or whatever, um, Unless you have an exit pegged for how they're going to get that value, that don't don't do it, right? Because um, if you're running a private company and you have no idea when you're going to sell it, it's um, 
too far out for people to have a real economic interest in in that part of the business, right? So mm -hmm. just your your a private company is a liquid, right? As a general rule, unless you're going to build in a way that they can get that value out, which also has its own problems. But if you're going to do it, right? So let's just say that you do have. So we always had in mind that we were going to sell the business. We had a time horizon that we uh, expected it to happen. It didn't turn out that way. It took longer, but which I can tell that's a whole nother story. But the that this then the responsibility of you as the leader or the leadership team is that you have to educate those people that you are granting these options or uh, appreciation rights to you have to educate them as to how it all works and it's not small it's not a small thing to because now they have to understand how a business will be valued what are the levers that make that value go up um, how do they play a role and what's their responsibility? What are the KPIs that they're driving that make the business more valuable over time? And so you have to really spend an, an inordinate amount of time educating the team and reminding them of why you're doing the, you're driving this way for the business, right? So those are all the, the downsides. We spent a lot of time educating people as to how driving the value of the business is going to be good for them so that they could connect the dots between, okay, if I improve gross profit by 5%, as an example, what's that do to the value of the business? And how does that then reflect back to me on the increase in value for my options? And of course, then throw on top of it, market conditions change everything, right? Like right now we're in a crazy valuation period um, where companies are getting ridiculous valuations. So those options could be worth a lot, but that won't last forever either. So um, having a clear picture that and an educational system for that. I'm much more a fan of shorter term bonuses because the, the second thing is no leader has ever figured out a compensation program that is good that forever, right? That's um, temporary. <clears throat> so the when you use shorter term bonuses that are based around the achievement of objectives in a time frame, now somebody can wake up in the morning and do something that's going to result with to a financial change for them in the shorter term. And if you can make it that it's not about a formula per se, but about the achievement of a goal, that's the best because the problem with formulas is that they become obsolete. For example, if I have a salesperson and I say, I'm going to give you 5% of our gross profit, and that's going to be your bonus. Well, as the company grows, that 5%, one becomes a ridiculously large number. And secondly, uh, I have to deal with either shrinking your territory or changing the percentage and so on. So it gets to be this never ending battle between me and somebody else about the formula. Yeah. Instead, I say, this year, I want you to improve gross profit by, say, $100,000. And in exchange for that, if you hit that target, I'm going to give you $20,000. And then we'll renegotiate next period what that's going to be. You solve for a lot of that hand-wringing and, and debating about changing a formula that somebody's gotten used to. Because one thing's for sure, people will figure out how to game the system. Short-term bonuses based around achievement of, of objectives has been the best uh, compensation program for most 
leaders and frontline employees. But in a big business, you know, with an exit in mind can benefit greatly by having options or some variation on the theme. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because having, you know, issued options to my management team and then selling the business, I think ultimately they were viewed as kind of gravy as opposed to the tool that produced these deep motivational characteristics that I was looking to create. And and, um, now that I've kind of gone through that experience and as I'm rethinking my own approach to options versus short-term bonuses versus other kind of incentive mechanisms, I use almost like a decision criteria similar to um, SMART goals, right? So is it measurable, right? Well, a, a bonus is much more easily measured than... Uh, stock options, right? Particularly for executives who are not particularly financially inclined, it's a lot easier to explain a bonus than it is stock options. You know, is it reasonably attainable? It's kind of easier to understand, okay, if I increase gross profit by 5%, I understand that. Whereas it's a little bit more nebulous to say, if I increase gross profit by 5%, here's what it's going to do to the company valuation and therefore my share price. And then the, the big thing for me was time-based, right? And, and I think generally speaking, it's been well-established that the less time there is between action and reward, the higher the motivational qualities of that reward. Whereas if I give you an option today and I say, hey, we're planning to exit in 10 years, you know, there's really no clear link between those two things. And as a result, the motivational characteristics that you're trying to create might be lost. Yep. And yeah, I've seen it work. Definitely, I agree with everything you just said. And I'll add to it that if you're going to use those options, you have to be talking about them regularly if you want it to have any value. Right. right? So having that company valued by, you know, independently, for example, or finding comps in your industry so that each quarter or at each year, you're basically doing an update and saying, hey, the value of the options pool has gone from X to Y. Your share of that is Z. And I'm super excited about that. And we're aiming next quarter to make that be Z 1.5 or whatever. Right. And now people are get can get at least go home and tell their significant other, hey, check this out. This thing, you know, when I'm working hard, I'm building value. Check out like what our account looks like. Now, there's all kinds of legal ramifications to that. So uh, I'm not a lawyer. So you want to make sure that you say these things in the right way um, about how the value is increasing. But uh, make sure that you're doing that if you're going to use that as a tool. I'm curious what uh, I got to work on my transitions here. I'm jumping all over the place. But at, at the risk of doing so, I'm curious, what have you learned about granting equity or stock options to the management teams of your portfolio companies? This is a very common mechanism to align interests and provide key people in the company with upside. It's easy to understand why, at least at a intellectual level. But when dealing with small, illiquid private companies where liquidity tends to come in the form of an exit event many years into the future... Um, and with private company stock options being very difficult for the recipients to value and sometimes difficult to understand in my experience, I found that in some instances, granting options and equity is actually less motivating than the finance textbooks might otherwise suggest. So I'm, I'm just curious, what has your experience taught you in, in this regard? Obviously, you're bringing a, a nuanced and experienced approach because I, I think the, the uh, 
novice approach, especially amongst investors to um, incentives is to like quote Charlie Munger and be like, you know, incentives are outrageously ungodly important. And therefore we're just going to, you know, pretend people are robots and um, incentivize them as if they were. And I think that's exactly the wrong approach. Um, not saying that Charlie's wrong. I'm not saying that incentives don't matter. That's not what I'm saying at all. What you have to ask it fundamentally at the end of the day with every incentive that you're going to put into place is, okay, what is the behavior that this person is exhibiting now that I believe that by putting this incentive plan will change and they'll stop doing? Or alternatively, and maybe it's a bundle of these things, what are the things that they're not currently doing that by putting this incentive plan into place, they will, they will start doing? And it's so easy to say, oh, well, if I just incentivize our leadership teams with X amount more equity, they would just make more money because obviously they want to make more money and we want to make more money. But the, the reality is even for leadership teams, the causality between their actions and the profitability of the firm is not always obvious, <laughs> especially on a day-to-day -day basis. So when you really boil it down through that formula and say, look, what is, what is the behavior positively or negatively that we think is going to change as a result of the incentive, it, it often results in, well, I don't think the incentive is actually going to change that much. Now, what we want to say is we want to operate from a position of shared fairness and bordering on, or hopefully even exceeding generosity. So if we win, we want them to win with us, not because maybe their behavior would have changed that much, but because truly we want people to be incentivized sort of be all in on what they're doing, not all in, in the sense that they lose sight of their families and relationships and lead an unhealthy lifestyle, uh, which by the way, can occur if you're trying to, you know, shoot a business with a steroid needle and, you know, rip it apart, rebuild it and sell it within a short period of time. I think that's a, that's a disaster for families. Um, but you know, with our approach, we're trying to build over, you know, a long period of time, call it five, 10, 15, 20 years, depending on the situation with the, obviously the executive, and so what we're trying to incentivize them to do is to say, hey, let's take the long view. Let's make decisions that are um, obvious from a capital allocation decision. If there's good things to reinvest in, let's reinvest in them. If not, let's put an opportunity cost on that capital that also hits home with you and with your family. And so we're, depending on the situation, sometimes there's a heavy rollover in the deals and there's less of a need to uh, align incentives. And sometimes there's you know no rollover and there is a more a need to align incentives. But I would say is, I think incentives are incredibly important and oftentimes much less important depending on the situation than people assume. Next up, you'll hear from Jim Sharp, who will be talking to us specifically about how to manage wage inflation and employee salary expectations. Jim has been at the Harvard Business School since 2009, holding positions as a senior lecturer in the MBA and executive education programs, an entrepreneur in residence, and now serves as a visiting executive. In 1987, Jim purchased Extrusion Technology, a aluminum extrusion fabricator that he ran as CEO for over 20 years. In 2008, Jim sold the company to a private equity firm, having grown the company from $4 million to $32 million in revenue throughout his ownership tenure. You know, the first thing that you said really resonated with me, which is being too reactive to employee requests. I found that, <laughs> you know, I, I did the same thing naturally. Uh, I don't have nearly as many years of experiences as you do with respect to operating, but I, that your, your comment resonated with me. In, I made the same mistake many times. And I think what I failed to appreciate at the time was if 
uh, employee A or employee B came into my office and asked for a raise and I was fearful of them leaving, I would give them the raise and I would kind of comfort myself by saying, well, you know, this is confidential. No one will find out. But of <laughs> course, in 100% of the cases, everybody found out. Uh, there's just a way that information like this tends to work itself through the grapevine. And what one employee gets, every other employee comes to expect, at least in my experience. Yes. And it's not a fair and equitable system for your employees. They shouldn't have to beg you for a, a raise. You should be able to take care of them ahead of time. And those systems are available, but they're easy not to implement in the early stages of, of ownership of your own company. There's a lot of things going on and kind of getting the handbook squared away and getting those levels assigned and wage structure assigned so people know how much they're going to be paid, how to get ahead, how to get a raise, how, what happens when they top out, what happens if they get a promotion and it's to a lesser kind of responsible job. Those things are important to them to, to have in place. Now, you said that eventually you benefited from leaning on procedures and policies as it relates to um, wages and specifically increases to wages. Yes. Once you had that, you know, eventually, once you had that infrastructure in place, did you find, like, did it work? Was oh, it effective? It, it was amazingly effective. I, I, I'd seen it at GE work. I didn't think I was big enough to put it together, but I went to the local state-funded kind of resource services for small, medium-sized companies and said, I need some help with this. And they said, oh, there's that guy over there does these all the time for companies. So we'll help you with the levels that needed to be in place, the quartiles about how you move up through the, through the, the entire level, the wage base, the wage ceiling, uh, all those worked effectively for me. Job descriptions had to be written. They had to be kind of judged. And then we would go out for a, every two years, an annual uh, a review of our wage structure in a competitive arena. And I used to have a, a discussion with the employees at least once a year about being a fireman. Uh, my supervisors would just go crazy because I would say, look, our company is not gonna be able to pay you the same wage that you get going down the street and becoming, joining the fire station. You can get paid more money there. And if you want a lot to be paid more money, you should go be a fire person, do that. It's okay with me. Um, but here's what our structure is. Our benefits are better than average. Our wages might be a little lower. And this is a great place to look, to work. And uh, so I learned the narrative to kind of let employees understand what our objectives were as a, as a company. Next up, you'll hear from Randy Street. Many of you will know Randy as co-author of the book, Who? The A Method for Hiring, which introduced the now widely used top grading hiring method to the world. The book went on to become a New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Business Week, USA Today, and Publishers Weekly bestseller. Most importantly, though, at least from my perspective, more so than any other book, this book acts as the hiring Bible for countless CEOs across the world. Okay, so uh, let's let's move on to compensation because I think no discussion of hiring would be complete without compensation, um, and and that is a big part of you know not just recruiting people to your company but developing them. It's you know how you compensate them uh, is important for attraction, for retention, but also to ensure that your employees feel valued, that they're properly incented, that. 
they receive payment that's commensurate with the value that they add in your business. Uh, that's all to say, hey, compensation is important. So I mean, specific to compensation, this is a bit of a, a broad question, but in your 30 years of, of research and uh, being a practitioner in the space, is there anything surprising or counterintuitive that you've learned that CEOs should learn from as it relates to compensation? So I, I have to start by saying I'm no expert in compensation at all. Uh, so what I'm offering here is more observations from personal experience versus research backed. Um, and I will also say that in my experience, there's, there's no perfect system. So you can try all day long to come up with a perfect system. You're never going to get there. Every system's imperfect. Yet the other thing I would add is any, then the minute you implement a compensation system, uh, it's going to change people's behaviors, whether you like it or not. So yes. going back to our, our cultural discussion, the number one driver of culture is actually compensation, believe it or mm. not. Mm. And you've got to work hard to overcome the negative impacts of your compensation system with everything else that we talked about, because it will, it will carry way more weight in your culture than you care to admit. In fact, when I was running um, sales and marketing at that former company, EasyGov, I mentioned, um, one, of, one of the people I was interviewing once asked me to see the compensation plan. I was giving him all the, you know, the spiel about our strategy and our culture. And he just said, yeah, show me the comp plan because that's your actual strategy and your actual, actual mm. culture. Uh, and that's always stuck with me. And he was right. Um, surprises, though, with all of that uh, as my caveat, um, one is, you, you just said it, actually, it's a way to show how you value people. It's less about the absolute number sometimes and more about showing somebody that you care and that you value them, which is tough because um, it's, it's sort of the old proverbial, if you ask 100 people if they're an, an above average driver or below average driver, 90% will say they are an above average driver. And the right. same, is, same is true. If you ask, are you an above average employee or below average, they all think they're above average. So uh, it's kind of a no-win situation, but it, it is a way to show people uh, what you think of them. The other thing, which I'd say is, a, it's not so much a surprise, but more of a, just a watch out. It's just, it's a way that people keep score uh, at some point. Early on in their career, it's, it's a way to show progression. Uh, it becomes about taking care of their family. And at some point, it becomes a way of, uh, to keep score. Um, I, I, I had a situation where there were two executives, and they were making a ridiculous amount of money. One made $3 million with bonus, and one made 3.1. This was obviously not a small uh, and medium-sized business. This was a larger business. But the one who made three was really upset, if you can believe it, because he felt like he was a stronger employee than the one that made 3.1. Mm -hmm. they, they went through this whole process to understand, you know, why this um, outstanding performer got paid less than the, the mediocre performer. And it turned out he had joined a year after the first guy and they had a compensation program that increased with time. It was just purely time-based, not performance-based. Sure. But it was this ridiculous rigmarole. And you know, I'm sitting there going, these guys are making 3 million bucks a year. <laughs> like, what's the problem? Stop talking about this. But it, it, was, it was a way of keeping score and as a way of feeling valued. And it was not about the money in the bank. It was about um, the emotions and the sort of value conferred by the dollars behind it. And so that's probably been my biggest surprise is, is just how much it influences behavior, not always in a very good way. Um, 
yeah, it, yeah. It's, a, it's a it's a challenging like we have to pay in, a, in our commercial world but it really screws an awful lot up it does it's so interesting that you mentioned its impact on behavior because it's so true in my experience and, and one of the things that i learned in putting together you know I spent a lot of time and lost a lot of hair on trying to put good bonus plans and comp plans together for our team. And one of the things that I noticed over time is that when crafting these things, you have to be really thoughtful about unintended consequences. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that uh, is now very obvious in retrospect, but at the time was not obvious to me many years ago, is we had a customer support team. And like most customer support teams, they would talk to customers, take their tickets, you know, resolve their issues and send them on their way. So in all of our wisdom, myself, my management team said, hey, we have a big backlog of tickets. Why don't we incent people on the number of tickets that they successfully process? That makes sense. Um, but of course, what we didn't realize is that that incented the members of our support team to cherry pick the easiest and quickest possible tickets, mm -hmm. leaving the hairy, complicated, ugly ones for somebody else to deal with. And, and I only mention that because with every decision that you make, with everything that you are attempting to incent, I think you have to be really thoughtful about, you know, not, not to view others in, in kind of a, a negative or a distrustful way, but ask yourself, is there some other unintended incentive that I'm creating here? Mm, yeah, absolutely. And every compensation plan will create perverse incentives. Uh, so it's helpful to try to think through those before you put the plan in place. Um, think of the people on your team that are going to game the system and, and kind of put yourself in their shoes. How are they going to game this? Because they will. And it's, That's right. it will likely uh, uh, you know, expose something that you don't want. D Daniel Pink talks about compensation in, I think it's in Drive, uh, where he talks about it. And you know, he, he basically points out, it's kind of a funny example, but if you went to a Thanksgiving dinner with your family and it was all lovely and wonderful and everything, and then at the, at the end, as you're walking out, you said, uh, mom, how much do I owe you for that? Suddenly you turn a, uh, a wonderful event into a transaction and it changes the dynamic of everything. And of course, your family made that meal just because they wanted to. Well, again, the problem with compensation is there's no way to not have the uh, you know, that conversation in a commercial context. Um, and so how do you do it where you get the most alignment, mo you know, it's, a, it's an extrinsic motivator. How do you do it in a way that's least disruptive to your business? Uh, and there's no perfect answer. Um, I wish there were, if I, if there, if there was, I'd have a very different business. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'd be in the comp business for sure, because, uh, boy, that'd be a silver bullet. I'd, I'd love to find. Last but not least is Bob Pritchett, who is the author of one of my favorite business books of all time called Fire Someone Today, subtitle and other surprising tactics for making your business a success. In addition to being an author, Bob is also a lifetime entrepreneur and CEO, having founded Logos Research Systems, which was later renamed Logos Bible Software and now Faithlife. He founded that business in 1992 and acted as its CEO for 30 years until recently assuming the role of executive chairman. So let's move from, from customers to employees. And, you know, one of the things that I learned as a CEO at the risk of oversimplifying is that people generally do what they are incented to do. And though that platitude is easy enough to understand, 
crafting good incentive plans was really hard. And it wasn't hard just for me. I know it's hard for most CEOs and entrepreneurs that I deal with. Um, and we talk about when, when, when I say incentives, it could be anything from a company-wide bonus plan to incentive plans for the sales team, maybe options or equity issuances to members of the senior leadership team, whatever the case may be. I'm curious, in your 30-plus years as an entrepreneur, what are some of the lessons that you've learned over about how to properly incent employees within your company? And what are some of the biggest mistakes that you've made in that regard and maybe some lessons that flow from those mistakes? So in the big picture, I think that, that research shows that incentives that are immediate um, are better than ones that are long-term. And there's actually been a, despite companies' annual bonus plans and profit sharing and, and stock options and things like that, um, there's a lot of academic research that shows that, that incentives that are, that are that far out actually don't change behavior. People certainly like a stock option plan that makes them a lot of money three years down the road, but there's not good data to show that it actually changes behavior. Um, behavior seems to be changed in much shorter things. It's kind of like, you know, if you reward or punish children uh, for something they did, you know, a week after they did it, you know, how effective would that be as a parenting technique? Um, and so I'm a fan of things that are closer in and of course in setting the, you know, on more of a daily behavior. Uh, I think that incentives make a huge difference in terms of that daily behavior. And so, you know, even a stock option plan might make a huge difference in someone choosing to join your company versus another. But I think once they've, they have the, uh, it's a lower level incentive. But in terms of like incentivizing your sales team, it, we have a lot of experience of seeing, you know, that whether you spiff new customer acquisition or a particular behavior or a particular, you know, saying a particular phrase or transferring someone to sales or, you know, all those things can make a huge difference. But one of the problems is people learn to game those systems very quickly, right? And the better your incentive program is at immediate reward uh, for the behaviors you want, the better people will get at focusing on exactly that behavior. And we, we tried, you know, territory-based sales. We tried account ownership sales. We tried spiffing new sales acquisitions. And years ago, I remember having a conversation with my father as we were, we were realizing that our sales team had once again figured out how to game the system so they were winning on the incentive, but now we were hurting some other thing, need the company had. And uh, I said, what is the best in sales incentive program? Like we, at the time we had dealers, it's like, should people have territories? Should they have named account ownership? And he's like, the best system is the next system because whatever system you come up with, people will eventually figure out how to optimize for it and you will have left out some other important element and then you need to switch it. And I think that for me, the big takeaway is there is not a perfect incentive system. Incentive systems need to be constantly tweaked because uh, they start to work too well. And you, know, you get really good at acquiring new customers and now you're doing a bad job of taking care of existing customers or you get really good at maintaining existing customers but now no one's finding new customers and you just have to keep uh, changing it in order to, to find a balance.